Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Dr. Christian Wiprecht's uh, book is Polar Cousins. And that's what we are. To the Russians, we are polar cousins, although they have us outgunned, uh, very easily have us outgunned. And the uh, question now is, what's going to happen in this relationship between Russia and Canada as the situation between Russia and Ukraine continues to develop? What's the outcome of this going to turn out to be in the, uh, the shorter and in the longer term? And uh, Dr. Luke Precht joins us from uh, Europe. Christian, thank you very much for for uh, taking the time. Are we in a situation now that is of greater concern than we may have faced six months ago? Is this is is the potential for actual conflict involving Canadian and uh, Russian troops greater now than it might have been last summer? Well, um, I suppose that depends on where in the world you're looking at uh, at potential conflict. Um, in Europe, I think Canadian troops continue to be a source of stabilization. Uh, and in the Arctic, nobody really wants to fight a war in the Arctic because it would be uh, so very difficult. But I think there's a serious risk of miscalculation in the current environment. Um, now, we do have, of course, decades of deconfliction mechanisms uh, with uh, Russia, uh, that we honed during Soviet times. But certainly um, when it comes to the Arctic in particular, Russia has the initiative. Um, and uh, when your adversary has the initiative and you're in a uh, competitive and contested uh, circumstance, then inherently the risk of misinterpreting the other side's move are all the greater um, and so Canada needs to play a role of stabilizing the situation. And that means in the current context, containing and deterring uh, Russian aggression and, uh, and potential Russian adventurism. Yeah, you and I have talked about uh, this in the past. Canada would not be a, uh, would not be a fair fight if, if a fair fight means, you know, it's one guy on their side, one guy on our side and. And then we uh, and then we duke it out, as it were, and, and out of that uh, duking it out, we're to come the winner. It's, it's, it wouldn't be that kind of fight. We're not militarily capable of standing up to the Russians in the manner that Ukraine has stood up to them. So, from that perspective, how uh, dangerously undermanned are we, and how concerned do we have to be about this reality? Also, the Arctic is a competitive space, and I think this is one of the objectives of the book to get people to rethink the Arctic as sort of traditionally, I think in particular in the minds of Canadian politicians, but in the Canadian public, been sort of the zone of peace and cooperation. And uh, no matter what domain you're looking in, so not just the land domain, but the maritime domain, the air domain, but also, for instance, if you look at cyber, uh, this has become a highly contested space. And so my contention is that 
Arctic security is very much about global security. And so if we're not being a stabilizing power in the Arctic, inherently, we are also generating more uncertainty and more risk uh, that emanates from the Arctic for the rest of, uh, for the, rest of the world. Uh, the challenge is, of course, that any investment you make in the Arctic is about 10 times as expensive as it would be anywhere else uh, in Canada in terms of defense, and that we have significant deficits in the maritime space, in the land space, as well as in the air and aerospace domains. In addition to that, we have significant weaknesses, social weaknesses among local communities in the Arctic and significant uh, deficits in terms of critical infrastructure all of which lend themselves to exploitation by hostile actors that aren't just interested in kinetic conflict, but that use asymmetric and gray zone tactics below the law of armed conflict uh, in order to exploit vulnerable communities, sow division and polarization. And so any approach to the Arctic needs to have not just a defensive component, but needs to be a whole of government comp- uh, uh, strategy um, with a whole of society approach, because making the uh, making our whole Arctic more resilient is key uh, to asserting our interests and our sovereignty in that space. So, when we in Canada see a headline which reads "U.S. sanctions two Montreal companies for alleged ties to Russia," what should we be reading into this into this headline? So Canada is not alone in this regard. Uh, other allied countries, including, for instance, in Germany, where I am, there's been uh, some concern um, about uh, where some of their products are going um, and the ability to by Russia to exploit uh, imports into the into the sort of Russian periphery countries, in particular the stands. Um, that are then products that are re-exported to Russia. But the broader concern here is, I think, that it appears that these are country, companies uh, that either faci- intentionally facilitated trade of uh, dual-use or banned goods um, or, in effect, traded in those goods themselves. And so I think for Canada, um, we've made a lot of performative announcements in terms of sanctions. But if you look, for instance, at the amount of assets that have actually been frozen in Canada, uh, the amount is relatively puny compared to some of our key allies in Europe that are much smaller countries and much smaller economies. And this points to the fact that Canada also needs to do a much better job at ensuring that Canadian companies aren't uh, either flouting those sanctions or are being leveraged uh, by others in order to circumvent the sanctions that are in place. And of course, Canada is a a favorite target for trying to circumvent sanctions in the sense that we are close to the United States. We have a close trading relationship with the United States uh, and we're a highly connected country. And so I think it shows that uh, we need to pay much closer attention also, not just to making announcements about sanctions, but to ensure that we're actually able to enforce those sanctions Um, and to make sure that Canadian companies know that if they attempt to circumvent those sanctions, um, they will be identified and there will be serious repercussions. Are we likely to see a situation where the the relationship between Canada and the United States is developed further and in a more positive way for the, the two countries directly involved, the U.S. and Canada? Are we likely to see that take place in the next year, two years, however long it takes for this particular relationship to to uh, to strengthen or is this going to be 
uh, slowly building up in the background until one day we we do realize and we do recognize that it, it really is uh, Canada and the U.S. versus Russia and its allies, possibly, perhaps likely China. Yeah, so this is a really good point that you're making. So, of course, we saw the charm offensive by the Biden administration, and uh, we saw lots of uh, uh, narrative coming out of the United States about what a great relationship the United States has and with Canada and uh, and all the accolades for Canada. But the reality is, as we've seen in the run-up in the news, there are a lot of areas that require uh, a lot of heavy lifting, and in particular by Canada, because we have a significant deficit on a whole host of areas. And I think, for instance, the border accord was a bit of an olive branch to Canada that the United States will take action that is primarily in Canada's interest rather than in America's interest, but that in return, it uh, expects serious commitments, investments, um, and uh, capability development uh, by Canada in areas that matter to the United States. And the key to that conversation is, of course, that um, the approaches through the Arctic are strategically the single most important element in terms of national and continental defense for Canada. So in terms of investment and capabilities, it is the Arctic first and foremost, and is the the relationship with Europe um, as our second most strategic ally after the United States uh, second. And as we know, the United States have reminded us repeatedly that we are falling short in terms of U.S. expectations and the commitments and expectations by our allies. And the problem is, of course, that if the continent is not secure, that means the U.S. cannot exercise its obligations in terms of extended deterrence, and in particular, in terms of extended nuclear deterrence. So any investment in the Arctic and Arctic security and continental security is necessarily also an investment in particularly the transatlantic alliance, that is to say NATO and European stability, but also more broadly in the Indo-Pacific in terms of broader theater stability uh, for partners um, that are under duress uh, that are under duress by China. And the challenge for Canada is that on the one hand, uh, as I always say, the Americans are our best friends, whether we like it or not. But at the same time, uh, American interests are diverging from Canada's interests, in particular when it comes to priorities in the Indo-Pacific. As we know, the United States has been driving a much harder line on the Indo-Pacific than uh, Canada has. Um, and it appears that there's also growing ideological differences in terms of foreign policy priorities. And so the challenge here is that Canada, if it's not taken seriously uh, by Washington first and foremost, but by our allies, will fall by the wayside in terms of its importance. That is to say that the United States and Europe will simply say, look, if Canada doesn't invest and Canada doesn't play, we're just going to go it on our own. And that would seriously diminish Canada's ability to assert its national interest um, on the international scene um, and thereby also seriously reduce Canada's importance overall in the world. This has always been a risk, especially since the end of World War II. And this is why Canada has always invested heavily in both international organizations and in uh, alliance and continental defense. And so all these deficits and shortfalls that the Americans are reminding us of aren't just operational problems, they are serious strategic problems because not investing means seriously diminishing uh, Canada's weight uh, and the ability to pull its weight um, and to uh, proverbially punch above its weight as we have for decades. Just looking at an MLI, McDonald Laurier Institute op-ed written by Dr. Leprecht, our guest, Dr. Christian Leprecht, who wrote in part, notwithstanding the rapid shift in the international and Arctic geostrategic and security environment, 
Even Canada's latest Arctic and Northern policy framework remains laden with outdated notions of Arctic exceptionalism, the Arctic as a domain of perpetual peace. Even Canada's 2017 defense policy, strong, secure, engaged, intentionally skirted NORAD renewal, leaving NORAD off the latest defense policy update yet again would signal strategic failure and abdication by Canada to allies and adversaries alike uh, the call into question Canada's already tarnished reputation as a responsible and reliable ally and consequently further diminish Canada's ability to assert its national interests and bolster Canada's decades-long strategy, strategy rather, of uh, leveraging NATO allies and partners to that effect. So, Christian, what, I, what I'm reading here, or trying to read here, is uh, Canada saying we're trying to play both ends against the middle. Yeah, it's a, uh, a persistent challenge, I think, that uh, the government cur- currently finds itself in, in terms of uh, benign neglect of 20 years for the armed forces. But in particular, I think what uh, governments on both sides of the aisle um, have underappreciated the very rapid changes in the Arctic. And of course, there's lots of change about the, the extent to which uh, climate change is affecting the Arctic. What people underappreciate is um, the extent to which the security circumstances in the Arctic have changed. And where the Arctic was previously an afterthought, the sort of little white dots on the poles, if you want, uh, the Arctic is now actively in play. And we saw this, for instance, with regards to balloons making their way into our airspace. These balloons were clearly a test, for instance, of uh, NORAD, the North American Aerospace Command, in order to watch how uh, NORAD would respond to these uh, uh, to, to these objects, whether NORAD would be able to identify them, under what circumstances they would be able to identify them. Um, and uh, we saw a very different also political response by the governments on the two sides of, uh, of the border, Canada looking not to draw too much attention uh, to the matter. And I think this all sort of reflects the, um, the the challenge that we have in the sense that any investment in North in Arctic defense and security is going to be very expensive. And the government announced last year $4.9 billion that was widely interpreted by the press as sort of a new investment in NORAD. But really, this was money that the government had announced previously. And if you go with the amount that uh, – uh, with the premise that everything is 10 times more expensive in the Arctic – you're looking at under 500 millions uh, in terms of an investment uh, that's barely a down payment on the significant deficit that we have. Because if you look at the last time Canada made a major investment uh, in Arctic defense, it was 1984. So imagine you're driving a car from 1984 um, and your local garage is telling you that your car is going to need a host of updates here. You can imagine that that gets pretty expensive. And Canada has sort of been taking the approach that like, well, you know, we can sort of uh, uh, sputter along sort of with the car that we have. But now we're realizing we need planes that can operate in the Arctic um, uh, in, a, in a digitized environment. So the F-35s, uh, we need a whole data-driven infrastructure. We need a whole new radar system in order to cope with uh, hypersonic um, uh, uh, hypersonic missiles, um, as well as um, unmanned underwater uh, vehicles, um, and we need to cope with uh, challenges from uh, a, Russia, a Chinese Arctic strategy, so a whole new hostile player uh, showing up and making claims against our resources, um, and we can uh, barely manage to muster. China's involved in this, in this whole uh, exchange, 
in the Arctic between Russia and Canada, if we're going to say Russia, Canada, Russia, Canada, Canada, Russia, China's involved in this in a major way as well. And uh, they would, they are interested in their approach and their expectations. And we are, are we fairly predictable to everybody who's in this, in this, uh, in this game? Well, this is sort of my, my book makes the case that we need to look at the two poles um, uh, as a complementary challenge, because the way Russia and China are playing in the Antarctic, they're also playing in the Arctic. Um, and um, if you think the United States feels a little bit let down by Canada's commitment in the Arctic, uh, Australia certainly feels down by its allies when it comes to the Antarctic um, and the broader sort of Indo-Pacific. And so we can see that the United States and the United Kingdom are stepping up when it comes to that in terms of AUKUS. Uh, but Canada has a lot to learn from uh, the challenges uh, the, 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 the challenges that China and Russia pose uh, in the Antarctic. And if we took a more concerted approach to the two poles and we looked at uh, the importance that um, our contribution can make on both sides of the poles in terms of not just stability on the poles, but, but the way global stability now emanates uh, from the two poles, given the hostilities and the hostile actions that we see by both China and Russia um, on, uh, on, on, on both parts of sort of the ends of the, uh, the, ends of the earth, I think we would be taking a different, uh, different approach. So rather than just looking at our coastline in the Arctic and our sovereign interests, uh, we should be looking at the stabilizing force uh, that we can be by contain by uh, by by containing and deterring um, um, actions on both sides of the poles that are fundamentally run against our interests. Whether that is actions in the defense and security realm, but th whether that is also actions such as overfishing in those waters, uh, potential resource exploitation in ways that uh, would simply run against our interests. And so, the argument that we need to be playing a little bit ahead here. Uh, rather than always catching up. Yeah, yeah. Just looking at an MLI op-ed, Russian designs on the Arctic aside, a resurgent communist China has been thriving on historical grievances against the West and revisionist narratives to underpin historically dubious claims about its rightful place in the world. China has made it clear that both poles are part of this aspiration, in particular the Arctic. Indeed, China has been engaging in significant disruptive activities including economic and legal warfare, environmental malpractices such as marine pollution and overfishing, an expansive military presence around the world, and technological innovation to protect power, project rather power into the world's polar regions. They're not leaving uh, anything open to chance, are they, Christian? Uh, no, I think, and we underestimate that, right? That China clearly has global ambitions and it has global ambitions to transplant the United States as the premier global power in the 21st century. Um, and we can see the way China has been exploiting that. If you look at, for instance, the recent meeting uh, in Moscow with uh, Putin, uh, this clearly played into China's strength in terms of the um, alliance between authoritarian states that are trying to promote a uh, take down the the liberal uh, uh, the liberal institutional order uh, as political order as we've known it since the Second World War. If you look at the deal that China um, uh, struck between Saudi Arabia and Iran, where um, China was clearly able to mow the U.S. lawn in a region where uh, the U.S. had uh, long had sort of um, uh, disproportionate influence. Um, and in the same way, China is looking to um, have, it considers itself a near-Arctic state by its own 
by its own profession. And uh, it has significant ambitions in the Antarctic, including uh, marine and uh, bioprospecting uh, that are deeply concerning to um, allied and, uh, and partner countries. And so how do we build a system uh, for the coming decades uh, that provides stability uh, in light of countries that uh, have had and have demonstrated significant disruptive intent uh, when it comes to not just international stability, but the stability um, and the um, international um, uh, governance arrangements that we had struck on both the Antarctic and Arctic and that have provided for stability in those regions for decades. And they're not asking nicely about this. They're, uh, they're telling us, this is what's expected of you, Canada, or this is what uh, we are expecting of you. And you wrote, evolving technology in the maritime and aerospace domains are changing the strategic calculus, particularly with advancements in hypersonic missiles and autonomous underwater vehicles. Russia is already leveraging in attempts to disrupt critical communication and pipeline infrastructure, while China has proclaimed itself a near-Arctic state, quote-unquote, and has developed growing maritime surface, subsurface, and space capabilities to this end. Nothing is being left in doubt here. Yeah, I think we got to play ahead with, I think it, this is not on most people's radar, uh, the extent to which China uh, and Russia are leveraging technology and technological developments, not just in terms of their to, to support their own hostile activities, uh, but to disrupt, for instance, our own uh, communications, in particular uh, submarine uh, cable communications that uh, transport about 98% of our data and internet traffic. Um, and uh, it, it, Russia has, for instance, demonstrated that it's quite prepared to, to disrupt both pipeline and submarine cables. Um, and China has demonstrated that uh, it is prepared to resort to uh, essentially global technological data uh, domination to digital authoritarianism um, and has shown uh, rather disregard for both uh, international law uh, and the, uh, the the sort of general norms that have provided for stability uh, for over recent decades. And so uh, one of the ways we deter bad behavior by hostile actors is to show that we have clear abilities not just to contain that behavior, but also to deter that behavior. That means uh, we don't just need to rely on the United States to draw red lines. We can draw red lines with allies. We now have Finland and Sweden, so all Arctic states with exception of Russia, uh, that uh, will be part of NATO. Uh, these are all states that are also part of the Arctic Council. And so we can um, certainly uh, establish clear norms in terms of appropriate behavior as well as consequences for states that violate those behaviors. And my concern is that uh, China has demonstrated repeatedly that it does not take Canada seriously uh, as a state or as an international player. Um, and Canada in and of itself will likely have difficulty to assert itself. But the way we've done this in the past is, of course, by partnering with the United States, with European allies, and also with allies in the Indo-Pacific. But that means we actually need to be able to provide those capabilities and also have a coherent strategy for how we invest not just in defense and security, but also understanding how hostile actors are undermining our economic prosperity and our social harmony. They're doing it in particular in the Arctic. If we choose not to uh, heed the warning, and I believe that's what it is, a warning by China, if we choose not to pay attention, what are we facing potentially here? The question for Canada is, Canada was a key player in shaping the second half of the 20th century. 
um, in making sure that we provide it for cooperation, for stability, and to deter aggressive and bad action um, by the Soviet Union. Uh, we can see in recent years that we have not been effective at that deterrence. Otherwise, we wouldn't be looking at Putin uh, having um, uh, coerced and bullied his neighborhood, uh, having illegally invaded Crimea, and having started the first war of aggression and invasion in Europe in decades. And so that should be a warning sign uh, that we haven't been doing enough and we haven't been investing enough in stability. Um, and given the ambitions that China has shown in the Indo-Pacific, um, we can contain China in the Arctic. Um, but much of the Indo-Pacific is probably uh, a game that the United States only is able to play because it will involve air power and maritime power uh, with some key allies and partners. So that means Canada has much more of an obligation uh, to invest in Europe and to be able to ensure it can shore up European allies so that the United States can redeploy some of its assets uh, to the Indo-Pacific. And my concern is that the... Um, the investment that we made after World War II in global stability that made us the uh, stable, prosperous, harmonious, uh, not just country, but continent that we have, was built on playing ahead and shaping the world of the 20, 20th century. I'm not sure there's a vision in Ottawa by either of the parties for how Canada can and needs to shape the world of the 21st century to ensure that we can benefit from the stability, prosperity, security, and democracy that has made us the country that we are today. Do we realize the cost that's involved here? I think part of the problem is that politicians only look at both the economic, uh, the fiscal costs of what it might take to be able to shape this world and to play in this game, both in terms of defense and security investments, but also in terms of investments in our international affairs. Um, and they're looking perhaps at some of the electoral costs because these are not investments that um, electorates usually like to vote for. In particular in Canada, there's no votes to be had usually in foreign policy. And so this is why governments tend to shy away and investments in defense tend to be controversial. But the question Canada needs to ask itself in a highly contested geopolitical environment of the 21st century, do we simply want to play on the fourth bench and be a bench warmer? Or do we want to continue to play on the first line the way we did after World War II in order to shape the world in ways that are ultimately not just in our interests, but also in institutions that allow us to assert our interests for a country that is a, of a relatively modest, uh, modest size? And I would say, relatively speaking, our capacity to do that has diminished significantly uh, over the last 30 years. And yet the threats, the risks, and the demands have grown exponentially. And so if we don't find a better balance, uh, it means not only will we not be able to uh, secure and defend ourselves against hostile actions, we will also end up living in a world where we will look back in 20 or 30 years and say, if only we had had some foresight with a relatively little investment now, we could have made a significant difference in terms of not ending up in the world that I think uh, Canada is headed towards over the next 20, 30 years if it continues to put its head in the sand and be ignorant of the strategy that got us to where we are today. I'm just reading again from Dr. Christian Liprecht's op-ed, Canada's inaction on Arctic security is bound to embolden adversaries by standing idly by. Canada is failing to deter. In the process, Canada is inadvertently making the Arctic less secure, but not just for us, 
but for our most important strategic ally, the United States, as well as our European allies, against the panoply of gray zone dangers and hybrid warfare below the threshold of armed conflict by adversarial state actors, Canada continuing is continuing to demure until the status quo on the Arctic is no longer tenable, proliferating and accelerating threat vectors against the whole of the Arctic, Northern and Canadian society require a whole-of-government approach. Big job to do. We have. Do we have the players, first of all, Christian? Uh, it's, a, again, a big job that needs to be done. Do we have the players who can do the job? Well, I think what we need to look at is the United States has been investing heavily in the Arctic, um, not just in terms of capabilities, but also in terms of, for instance, a new regional education center, the Ted Stevens Center, um, the Arctic was the only domain, if you want, that didn't have its own uh, center to assemble knowledge and to disseminate that knowledge when it comes to uh, to security and defense. And I think our allies are simply, and, and you can see the same pattern by, for instance, um, Norway, uh, Denmark, Sweden, Finland, um, each of which can muster uh, just a few, uh, just a little bit fewer in terms of sort of the number of uh, of jets that uh, we as a country can muster. So if you look at this, there's about four times the capabilities in terms of jets and about uh, twice the capability, even when Canada is fully staffed up in terms of uh, F-35s. Uh, so I think these are just sort of some examples of that. Um, our allies and partners are clearly taking this challenge, the Arctic challenge, uh, quite seriously and uh, foresee a significantly contested and difficult future. Um, and so Canada here needs to ask itself whether it is prepared to be a real player. Because if you're not a player, the allies will simply say, that's fine, but you don't have a voice. Um, and if we claim to be an Arctic country and we claim to be taking our Arctic sovereignty seriously, uh, but we don't, uh, but we don't actually have a voice, uh, then it means that uh, we've basically abdicated our national interest and are leaving it up to other countries to decide what the future in the Arctic should look like. Um, and I think that's tragic, but these are the argument, these are the issues that significantly diminish Canada's standing in the world and Canada's standing among allies and partners. And the Arctic is now becoming a litmus test, um, uh, both within continental defense and allied defense. Uh, of how serious a player Canada actually is. Yeah, the uh, Kingston Dispensation of 1940, when Canada and the U.S. decided to cooperate on threats against the continent, made North America the most secure, prosperous, and stable continent the world has ever known. We think about that. Uh, as the Arctic approaches, um, as the Arctic approach poses the most immediate and direct threat to the North American continent, Arctic security is the ultimate litmus test of Canada's commitment to this bargain. And it is a bargain. It, it really is. A, it's, a, it's a bargain that I don't think we sometimes realize just how much of a bargain it is to us. Yeah, the silver lining here is that, of course, under the challenging circumstances of uh, the late 1930s and 1940, uh, that a U.S. president and a Canadian prime minister got together and forged a strategy that uh, would not only defeat uh, the greatest threat to democracy um, at the time, uh, but that would also then shape the second half of the 20th century. And so this is, I think, where the opportunity is that faced with the geostrategic competition and the confrontations of today, 
are we once again going to have a vision, not just for this country, but for the world and how we're going to shape the world in the way uh, that is going to be uh, in uh, in our interest and our ability to assert our interests. And I think, you know, people sometimes think that uh, the institutions and the world we live in today is sort of something that came uh, by happenstance. Um, and to some extent, uh, people can be excused for that, given that we've spent decades uh, hitching our foreign policy to the United States, rather than having an honest and open conversation among Canadians, what a sovereign foreign policy should look like. Uh, but the opportunity and the need here has come to have a more honest conversation, uh, both because uh, the challenges and the complexities of the challenges are rising exponentially, because we have significant deficits in investment, but also because uh, our interests uh, and uh, to some extent our, our ideologies are increasingly diverging uh, from our closest ally all over the recent decades, that is to say the United States. Uh, and so if we can't find the courage, muster the courage, uh, as a country and among the political leadership uh, to have these very difficult conversations with Canadians, uh, then uh, there's a serious risk that Canada will simply be reduced to relative irrelevance in global decision making. Yeah, and we have to make this decision very quickly. There's not a lot of time to be wasted. Uh, the world, I think we underestimate uh, the uh, ex the, the, the pace at which uh, the world is changing and how much more complex the challenges are getting uh, as a result of climate change, as a result of demographic change, so naturogenic causes as well as anthropogenic causes, that is to say the conflicts as well as the ambitions uh, that are being stoked by hostile actors, in particular, of course, Russia and China, but also Iran, North Korea, uh, Venezuela, and the like. Um, and uh, that simply sort of staying the course and hoping for the best, uh, as I always remind people, hope is not a method and hope is simply not going to get us uh, where we will need to be in 10 or 20 years. So I hope that we can develop uh, the same sort of courage uh, that we showed in the Kingston dispensation in 1940 um, in um, making sure that we can provide for the security, stability and prosperity. Uh, that Canadians seek for the coming decades, but that is in serious jeopardy as a result of all the trends that we just talked about. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. 